0: Welcome to episode 30 this week. We're going to be talking about confidence and your brain, covering concepts like blind confidence, why you get nervous, changing confidence, what the research says about self-affirmations, and nerve narrative flipping.
1: And also, we'll be covering the Dunning-Kruger effect, the unforgettable achievement file, and controversial one here, the myth of power poses. And as always, four practical brain tools For you to boost your confidence in your life. So let's get started. Here we are, episode 30 of the Brain Tools podcast, obviously looking at confidence today. And Sam, if you are a human being for listening to this, then you've seen people with high confidence, low confidence. You, You yourself have probably been through high confidence, low confidence. It's a very, very important topic, and that's why we're diving into today. How are you, my friend?
0: I'm going well, feeling confident in today's episode. Speaking of confidence, and I think it's it's an interesting one to think about because just about everyone I have ever known goes through some form of confidence issues at some stage. We all go through it.
1: Absolutely. Well, I, I was watching. You know, I, you know, I both love NBA, and watching uh, watching the Philadelphia si- series was. Uh, I'm going to call, use the operative word, interesting at the, to say the least, with seeing Ben Simmons have his confidence issues at the free throw line. And it really raised like a lot of things of how it actually debilitates people in terms of their actions and their behaviors when they're all in their head. And it doesn't just happen in professional sports. It happens in everyday life.
0: Agree, And uh, the the Ben Simmons case study, for those who haven't heard or haven't seen what's going on, is a a fascinating Representation of confidence faltering in the public spotlight.
1: Poor Ben in the clutch. In the clutch as well. Man, clutch poor balls. Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Did
0: you see, they burn a couple of his jerseys. Oh, someone so here, I ben. feel bad. The Olympics so are coming
1: up for us, and we're, we're meant to be the boomers where we're just coming on through, but apparently not.
0: No, no baby boomers for us. Um, so even someone like Ben Simmons can can struggle with confidence, and he's an international superstar, NBA player, getting paid two hundred million dollars, but. For the everyday person, for you and I, there are so many situations we deal with where confidence is a a really challenging thing. Things like job interviews, presentations, sales calls, first dates, even for some people going into social situations and, and parties and events, confidence in those settings can be really, really challenging. And so that's why it's so important to get a bit of a grasp on how confidence works in your brain, but also to be able to understand some of the tools you can use and some of the things we'll talk about today to to manage confidence because no matter who you are, you, you could be Neil Armstrong or you could be Joe Blow down the road working at the gas station. Everyone at some stage feels like a bit of an imposter.
1: Absolutely, and that's where 70% of people experience imposter syndrome in their life, the Journal of Behavioural Science says. And I I remember seeing Michael Cannon-Brooks, who's the CEO of Atlassian, have it do a TED Talk around it, and even the people at the absolute top of their game from a public perspective feel that Mm -hmm. as well. And low levels of self-esteem, it's correlated with so many negative things, hesitant decision-making, fear of failure, avoiding challenges, extreme behaviour and isolation. And you reel these things off, and, and it makes cognitive sense, but it's so hard to change when you're a situation where you are experiencing low confidence. And so I wanted to ask you if you've had a time in your life where you have experienced low confidence, you've had that, uh, you know, little trough, so to speak.
0: Oh, absolutely. I'm thinking back to a time when I was maybe 15, 16, I experienced some social ostracization. I was excluded from a couple of groups at school and it had a massive impact on my confidence, which has a flow and effect to everything you do. Because once your confidence falters in a couple of domains, suddenly just because you feel like people don't like you at school, you play basketball worse, your grades go down, your ability to communicate and connect with your family uh, decreases and, and suffers. So I've seen just how big an impact confidence has across domains and across all areas of life.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. And as you said, it becomes incubating, like having low confidence. And what we'll find out as well today is that there's this sort of Goldilocks effect when it comes to confidence, because we you know, normally talk about confidence from a, a low perspective. You have low self-confidence, low self-esteem, but as I'm sure you have met a few people in your life, there are some people that are beaming with some self-confidence and that can come across as narcissistic yeah. and arrogant. And so finding that balance becomes really important. But I thought starting Sam, first and foremost, we obviously start with definitions, but in doing the research for this episode, trying to channel inner Andrew Huberman, um, was looking at so many terms that are used interchangeably. And I'll be honest, I got really confused because I saw three terms. And I was like, hold on. They're different. They're the same. Self-confidence, self-esteem and self-efficacy. Did you see this when looking into this?
0: Oh yeah. The research is littered with those three things and it's so hard to discern what what is the actual difference between them?
1: Well, Hopefully, I can provide some answers. <laughs> and if I, if I don't make sense of this, then clearly I haven't worked it out. But what I I thought we'd start with is th- there's the three, right? But I think efficacy, efficacy is the one to probably take out of the equation for now, but I want to define it. And it's basically an individual's awareness or capabilities to handle future situations. So it's very much geared to that sort of motivational disposition, so to speak. But the two that become obviously that are often conflated and often the same thing is confidence and self-esteem. Now, to differentiate, confidence is trust in your own abilities. To give you the example, it's if I do X, then I know Y will happen. It is a predictor of future performance based on your past performance. And that becomes a, a sort of a key thing. But then to differentiate and get your feedback on this, then you have esteem. And that is your sense of self. It's your own value and respect. It still is anchored in the past it's your past experiences and it still looks at the future, but it's much more inward. And you can see how they can often get confused, but if you have low self-esteem, you can actually appear confident. And that's the classic case of fake it till you make it and why there's a discrepancy. How do you interpret those differences?
0: I think for me, there is often a big difference between internal states and external representations. And the way we feel can even manifest itself in uh, external states. What I actually mean by that is there's a reason we get nervous Mm. and why some people look nervous, some people feel nervous. And part of that reason is our autonomic nervous system, your ANS. And you have this physical response when you're nervous as part of this system, which kind of acts like your body security system, the autonomic nervous system. And what happens is when you get nervous, it leads to this perfectly natural state of high alertness. Uh, that's nerves, right? Where you get the butterflies in your stomach or sweaty palms or dry throat.
1: Are you about to but, quote Eminem? Are you Are you well, about to go through the lyrics down to Eminem? I saw two go down this barrel.
0: These <laughs> weak, brain sweaty.
1: <laughs> Very good, I like it.
0: <laughs> Getting on your central nervous system already. Ah, buzz. But by the way, butterflies... Uh, is actually blood being pumped away from your stomach to your muscles because your body's preparing to move. And then the nerves in your stomach sensing the shortage of blood and oxygen and firing, creating this weird sensation. I thought that was pretty cool. But effectively, this idea is that we get nervous and we feel nervous. We feel tense because our our brain is prepping our body for something going wrong. It's prepping it to move and things like adrenaline are pumped around the body. Muscles, uh, blood is pumped from the interior to all the, the muscles, norepinephrine in the brain, cortisol, and all these things create agitation and focus. They make it hard to sit still, make us want to fidget, and they make people want to sp- speak really quickly or rock back and forth. But what I'm trying to say is that we have this physical response to confidence-challenging situations.
1: It's that uh, whole idea of psychosomatic, uh, you know, representation, isn't it? Right. We love using that word, oh, yeah. but um, I think well, I'm reminded of the episode we did on on love. Uh, and if you haven't seen that, go check it out. But when we were really campaigning quite hard for the emoji of uh, the heart to be represented with one with a brain, because it, again, we we think of the butterflies in the stomach, but we don't really realize or appreciate that our brains. I'm not going to use the cause and effect, but it's really being sourced from the brain. And that whole idea of the autonomic nervous system for everyone is basically it's all in the background. Like you're not consciously yeah. aware of all this stuff going on in the background. And that's why in lie detector tests, a lot of the time when you're trying to measure, you know, nervousness, you're looking at heart rate, that variability, you're looking at how someone breathes. And these are things all under the surface.
0: Yeah, exactly. And they look at your sweat, electro- electrical uh, conductivity on, on the surface of the skin. So... Why we get nervous is because our brain is predicting something's going to go wrong. And why do we get nerves? It's because it's preparing our body for something going wrong, preparing to move. It's where the agitation comes from. But the crazy thing is that the body response to nervousness and to excitement is almost the exact same.
1: Wow. Really? almost
0: the exact same. So the manifestations in your body, the things you feel when you're nervous is almost the same physical response as excitement. Uh, which is crazy.
1: Two sides of the same coin, isn't it? And it does mm. represent itself very clearly in you know social situations, right? Because you're talking about nervousness and that manifestation in social situations all the time, social anxiety, so to speak. And Sam, I've got a study, 2017, Ooh. UCL, legit. <laughs> <Yeah. That's laughs> um, but this one, was, one. this one definitely got my attention because they were looking at sort of creating a mathematical equation around confidence, which I was like, okay, walk me through it. How are you going to do it? And so what they basically did was they had 40 healthy participants. And what they wanted to do was do a social evaluation task while an MRI scanner. So I want you to imagine they're in the MRI, they're doing a social evaluation. And it's basically Tinder. I'm not even kidding. So basically what happened is there was just a bunch of random people that were rating them, 184 strangers with a form of thumbs up or thumbs down, literally like Tinder. And so what was happening prior to this is some were geared to expect positive feedback. From some groups and others were geared to receive negative feedback so you can imagine they reached that steady state of expectation of the positive and the negative and after a couple of trials they actually found the people that got used to the positive feedback when they received a bit of negative feedback their self-esteem their self-confidence took a massive hit and it showed you the idea of social prediction errors when there's a difference between what we expect to be given. Versus what is actually given. And I've got a quote from one of the docs in this. And they sound, said, we found that self-esteem changes were guided not only by whether other people liked you, but were especially dependent on whether you expected to be liked. I found that fascinating. Your thoughts?
0: My thoughts are it makes a lot of sense when we think about this concept of reward error prediction coding. It's a really fancy way of saying the brain freaks out a little bit when something goes out of line with what it expects is going to happen, what prediction is going to happen. And it makes a whole bunch of changes after that moment because it says, hey, that was unexpected. So what you're saying is when we kind of expect to be liked or for a certain social result and that doesn't happen, then we take a much bigger hit to our esteem and our confidence if it wasn't the case otherwise.
1: Absolutely. And it raises the question of like, and we'll get to this as we get to the brain tool shortly, is, you know, how do you like with impact on students? The impact on oh, like right? just in the workplace is like too yeah. much of a good thing, probably too much, right? Too much praise, too much this, too much that, and the ramifications of too much quote-unquote confidence, not just not enough.
0: It kind of reminds me of that butterfly effect that a lot of kids have where they their self-esteem becomes really fragile because they're always told they're the best. Same thing. And then suddenly when they, they're they not the best, they take this huge hit and this huge fall. Um and I know that's a really quite prevalent in you know, high-achieving people in particular. They really struggle to deal with failure. But it comes back to this idea of, well, can we actually change confidence? That's we what we have hope? Doing, right? Sam, give me hope. Can we change confidence? <laughs> can I give you hope? I can't give you hope. But according to neuroscientist, Dr. Stacy Grossman-Bloom, that is her name, and she studies confidence. Yes, you can absolutely change it. You can change your ability to comp- to to be confident. You can change your overall baseline of confidence and confidence in certain situations because of neuroplasticity, because of our brain's ability to change and rewire itself. But there are a couple of caveats.
1: So, because I'm, I'm when when people get to neuroplasticity, which is the you know brain's ability to change itself from a synaptic perspective, how does it work mm-hmm. when it comes to confidence? Because this is a, a a black box for me.
0: It's a bit of a black box to to me as well, until I dug into some of the research. But from what I understood from Dr. Stacey uh, Grossman-Bloom's work is that confidence to be changed has to be built. It actually has to be learned and rewired. Um, So when you think about confidence in particular situations, confidence in that situation has to be learned. Confidence has to be built through experiences, through events, through successes, through repetition of success, effectively, to change that narrative. The thing is, there's no on and off confidence switch. It'd be great to just say, oh, I'm confident now, change my brain. You know what? Kieran, yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry you about it. Give me gray area. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, effectively, what, what the research says is much like many other attributes of who we are. When we have to learn something such as confidence, even even though it is not perhaps a skill, in some ways it is because we really have to myelinate those pathways in the brain and, and form those connections and associations between responses, uh, behavioural responses and emotional responses and brain and body responses and situations. Mm. And so to leave with a bit of a quote from the good doctor, she said, I would tell people to keep working on confidence because repetition and practice is how you change your brain to accommodate newfound confidence in a way that can be lasting and meaningful.
1: Yeah, that's uh, heavy, to be honest with you. I think in terms of the confidence part, which is it it is appearing like most things when it comes to the brain and that first principle, it's it's a learned thing. It's a learned behavior with obviously genetic predisposition. And I think when anything is a learned behavior, there's obviously going to be an outcome. And the outcome, if confidence, is that there's obviously, as we said, low confidence, and then there's going to be excess confidence. And so before we crack into the brain tools, I thought it'd be good to just speak to the downside of uh, too much confidence, so to speak, too much esteem. And I think the first point is just narcissism and arrogance, right? And people... Uh, I've heard friends lately say, oh, that person's an absolute narcissist. Oh, they're so arrogant. And it rubs people the wrong way, especially because people might have over-evaluated their abilities, but they're expressing something, but as a compensation for something else. Again, that whole idea of low self-esteem, high what appears to be high self-confidence. Have you seen that uh, before?
0: Oh, uh, yeah. We, we have plenty of tall poppy syndrome in Australia here plenty of bringing people down and a lot of that titling of narcissism. But sometimes that can also be self-reflective of the person or it can be reflective of, as you said, overcompensation.
1: Absolutely. And I think a nice beeline into that is then the Dunning-Kruger effect. And we sort of, you know, that it's a bias where we talk about overconfidence, but those that think they know Lead to overconfidence in their abilities, and that actually leads to suboptimal decisions. Because if you actually don't know, but you think you know, then you make decisions based on that. And it's really interesting when you look at this curve, which I'm sure you've seen before. The more expert you are, you start to realize Socrates' quote of "I know that I know nothing" starts to become a legit thing. Um, and you know, obviously, when you start to reach mastery, then you know the the difference between what you actually know and what you think you know starts to become closer together. But I think that that idea of blind confidence can be really an issue.
0: Such an issue, especially if you look at some of the research that's come out recently. And the idea is that confidence feeds bias, specifically self-confirmation bias. So it's an amazing study in the prestigious Nature Communications by Matt Rowledge and a couple of co- colleagues. And the study was titled Confidence Drives a Neural Confirmation Bias. And effectively, what they did was they took a whole bunch of people And they found the ones that were confident in a specific situation, and they asked them about their beliefs after an event had happened and found the ones that were confident were much more likely to continue to hold strong beliefs, even when proven with uh, disproving evidence that their beliefs were wrong. And so they became really biased uh, and prone to that confirmation bias. A good example of this is the classic overconfident Trump supporters believing the election was rigged even after it was proven otherwise. So it's that idea that the more confident you are in an idea, the more biased you can be as a result of that confidence.
1: Absolutely. It incubates itself. As I said, confidence breeds further confidence a lot of the time until it's completely destroyed when you realize you've made the wrong decision and you shouldn't have done it in the first place. Randover. (laughs)
0: Exactly right. Exactly right. Confidence causes us to ignore things we disagree with, even if they might be true. It's almost like this part of our brain shuts off. So that's wrapping up this section on the context of confidence in the brain. If you really want to learn and recall this information, what you need to do is spend some time now wrapping up what you learned. Get out a pen or your phone, write your notes, just write down three things that you learned because recalling means it's going to stick in your brain longer. And after the break, we're going to give you four brain tools you can use for confidence.
1: Well done, you've made it this far. So if you are loving this Brain Tools episode, share it with one person you actually think can benefit from this episode. The Brain Tools section of this confidence episode is right here, right now. But Sam, before we get in, there's actually a bit of a TED myth that I'd like to share with you.
0: You know how much we love busting myths.
1: Uh, We try our best. Let's give this a crack now. I want to take you back. Do you remember when the power pose became a big thing from uh, Amy Cuddy, uh, 2010? It was you remember everywhere.
0: This? It was everywhere. Yeah, I remember.
1: Was, and I'm okay, I'm not naked knocking Amy Cuddy because I think the message is fantastic, right? <laughs> Which is there are you want to find ways to increase confidence, especially for people in professional settings who really struggle with that sort of, I suppose, social anxiety, right? Which is going into an interview, asking for a raise. But- The long and short of this was she basically was positing through this paper that one of two power poses can boost your self-confidence, but explaining through a mechanism. And the mechanism that was explained was an increase in testosterone by circa 20% and decrease in cortisol by 25%. And this TED Talk has been viewed 43 million times. Now, let's sort this one out. There were 11 studies in 2017 from CRSP and the Social Psychology and Personality Science, which basically showed the original paper was flawed. They tried to replicate it to 200 people compared to original studies, which only had 42 people, and it failed to duplicate that effect. And the co-author that did it with Amy Cuddy, again, not slandering to Amy Cuddy. It's the paper. It's the research. Dana Carthy, Carney, she was the co-author reviewed and also noted there was a flaw with the experimental design. So the key thing to note is just to note that it's not that you do a power pose and then two minutes for two minutes and two minutes later, you are the most confident human alive. It seems nice. It seems like a silver bullet but it's not necessarily the case. And so I wanted to address that one up front because it's not going to appear in our four brain tools today, (laughs) even though people might've been expecting it to do so. Oh, yeah. I'm done.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ted, beware of TED Talks. Beware of research and the issue with the replication crisis when it comes to psychological research. I'm glad you called it out because it's something that I've seen over and over again, other people kind of in the, the brain and mind space talk about. That exact problem that people think they can just power pose their way to confidence.
1: Absolutely, and what we'll find out is it's something different, which is what my first brain tool has to do with. And it's time to share it, Sam. Brain tool number one: paint your body language picture.
0: Okay, no idea where you're going with this. I just one.
1: love that subtle person. You're like, Karen. What are, are, you, are you trying to do? Like a John Mayer lyric song? Like what's going on here? I'm not.
0: I don't know what you're talking about. If I, I'm not your French girl, what are you doing <laughs> right now?
1: And I think it first starts with this though, right? Which is like, I bring this up because we don't necessarily know what it looks like when we're nervous, right? If I say to you, hey, what are the specific things you do when you're nervous in all these different situations? And maybe some people would know, but most people wouldn't. We feel it. We think we can disguise it. But we don't realize that what we are showing through our body language is obviously impacting how people respond to us. And Albert Mehrabian was the famous dude that came up with a 7, 38, and 55 rule, which is the words, tone, and body language and how they impact you. 7% words, 38% tone, 55% body language. Now, for those listening, ignore the percentages. They literally don't make any sense whatsoever. But the principle behind what he's saying does, which is... What we actually do in terms of our physical body language does have a really big impact on how we appear to other people and then how they interact with us. And there's a feedback loop. So the most important part of painting your body language picture is to really clearly understand what confidence and not confidence looks like in terms of your body language so you can understand the message that you are sending to the people you're interacting with. And that's what I've got so far.
0: So effectively, there's almost a bit of a mirror for how confident you are and if you're not looking confident the person in front of you is going to mirror that lack of confidence towards you and via the process of neural synchronization neural coupling you're actually going to feel less confidence as a result super interesting the question is how do you how do you use that like once you know you've got uh, to paint your body language picture how do you actually do that
1: yeah, it's a good question. I think it first starts, just. I want to do a little bit of a brainstorm with you very, very quickly, right? Because I think it comes down to asking you two fundamental questions, which is what does confidence look like? Or you invert it and mm. say, what does confidence not look like? So to you, mate, just a few things. Off the top of my head, there's you know, a confident person. They're smiling. They're laughing. They're maintaining eye contact with you. They've probably got open body language and strong posture. Is there anything that you would add
0: to that list? The only thing I would add to that is it's really about yeah, open shoulders and head back and up so it's almost as if space can be equated to to confidence in body language
1: absolutely and that's where the whole idea of the fidgeting also comes as well like speaking Mm. too fast the tone that you're speaking as well how you use your hands and so to get really practical here once you've identified what a good framework for strong or great positive body language actually looks like to exude confidence and you've obviously done the reciprocal which is what it doesn't look like now it's time to video yourself you've got a framework Let's pick a situation. Let's say you're doing public speaking. Let's say you're doing a sales meeting. Let's say you're just doing a just everyday social situation. You need to have a mirror. So you video yourself and then you actually have this framework to say, hey, how many, did I look like I had really open body language? Did I not? Was I smiling? Was I not? And the reason I bring this up is I remember getting feedback from one of my first sales meetings when I was first starting the business (laughs) and man, oh man, I thought I was this charismatic, swagger, smiling No, (laughs) literally, (laughs) I didn't smile the entire time, but I thought I did. I was speaking way too fast, which to be fair, I still do. I literally looked like a murderer. That sounded nervous. That's literally what it came across like. And I had no idea about it. There was no feedback loop. And once I saw that against a framework, then I was able to say, hey, I might not be 100% confident right now. I might not be actually there. I need to fake it till I make it. Let's actually adopt these things. And then what happened is people responded to me differently. And because I have an inherent fear of rejection where I want people to like me, I noticed some more positive cues back to me. I built a little bit more confidence. I was able to actually act in that conversation and it was a big trigger change. So that's basically the core root of painting your body language picture, which is brain tool
0: number one. So get some understanding of what your body language is like when you are unconfident or not feeling confident in certain situations by using video and then use that to counter that non-confident body language and start to move to a place where you're actually exhibiting confidence and you have this feedback loop, which then makes you more confident because people reciprocate.
1: That is a very good summary, Sam.
0: Brain tool number one, off the books. Brain tool number one uh, leads us into brain tool number two, which is nerve narrative flipping. Nerve narrative flipping. And so the idea is that what we talked about earlier, nervousness and excitement are almost the same thing in the brain and the body, which means you can hijack this to improve your confidence simply by changing your narrative of how you're experiencing that feeling. If you tell yourself, this isn't nervousness, this is excitement and list out the reasons exciting You're able to flip the narrative, flip the nerves and flip your confidence. So simply saying, I am excited and telling yourself you feel excited whenever you feel nervous will help you be more confident in situations.
1: Yeah, it's it's almost a form of cognitive reappraisal, which we were talking about before. Which is you're changing oh, is, that yeah. lens of hey, and as we said before, and I loved that point where you said was um, that nerve nervousness and excitement are basically two sides of the same coin, and it's literally mm. that you're flipping it the other way like a coin um, to obviously look at the excitement part.
0: Exactly right, and you hit the hit the nail on the head when you said it's really similar to cognitive reappraisal. So go back and listen to our former episodes uh, on. Well being or in stress, uh, specifically the episode we did uh, uh, at work as well, because we talked about it there. And it's this idea that as anxiety and stress response is the same as the excitement response in the brain, but they feel different because of this top down perception of what we think they are or the verbiage we use to describe it. I'm so anxious right now. I have so much anxiety, even though they're identical uh, physiologically. If you change that verbiage, if you change the way you think of that to excitement, you're actually able to change the way you perceive that. And this is called anxious reappraisal. So really similar to cognitive reappraisal, called anxious reappraisal. And there's a whole slew of research out there, big body of work, one paper in particular, which is get excited, reappraising pre-performance anxiety as excitement, found that by just telling yourself I'm excited rather than I'm anxious, people are able to switch the impact this physical sensation had on their confidence levels
1: yeah that makes sense to me as well and that that notion of cognitive versus anxious reappraisal is a a really nice odage adage rather to it my my question here is then like implementing this because i'm trying to understand cognitive reappraisal is obviously taking you know something that you've experienced and trying to obviously flip it in a turn direction what about an example when it comes to anxiety and excitement
0: it's really simple, and it's a three-word rule I've heard used by everyone from Dr. Andrew Huberman himself, Sarah Grossman-Bloom talks about it, a couple of other people in the, the confidence and neuroscience space. Rather than saying, I am anxious, say, I'm excited right now. That's it. All you need to do is tell yourself, I'm excited right now when you feel those feelings and anxiety. And by doing this over and over again, you'll be able to flip that frame from anxious to excited, and therefore flip the impact that has in your performance.
1: Brain tool number two: so anxious reappraisal, change it from anxious anxiety to excitement. And those three magical words is not "I love you," but "I am excited." Cool,
0: I like that. That was really very advertising of you. Oh, and that's guess. brain tool number two.
1: <laughs> well, that, that leads nicely into brain tool number three because you know we're trying to shift our mindset from anxiety to the excitement, and I think brain tool number three is then called unforgettable achievement file. Now, it seems really weird. Again, advertising sounds like a really, really big thing, but the, the the key, I think, issue that people sometimes have. Myself, I would actually put up and include myself here is we can get really caught in the weeds of everyday life and we don't actually take time to reflect mm. and smell the roses. We're constantly, you know, we talk about the hedonic uh, treadmill or hedonic adaptation. There's always something next that we're trying to strive towards as we go up a hierarchy. But we don't realize we've generally achieved heaps more than we actually think, but you have to take stock. You have to actually sit there and be like, hey, what have I achieved? And looking back at that. And so that's the really clear solution is creating a list of all your achievements. And when you are in doubt, when you might be experiencing imposter syndrome, when you might be experiencing low confidence, it's now time to actually look at it, to actually remind yourself, hey, I can do this.
0: It's reminding me of that concept of negativity bias where we have so much more valence and salience in our brain to detecting negative events and especially our failures and recent failures if you take into account availability bias and things that happened more recently to us, we put more stock towards. So that's a really good point because if you don't remember all the things you did amazingly well in the past, you're going to focus on the things that you stuffed up in the present. Question, did you find any papers that supported some of this? So surprisingly, yes.
1: I had a lot of doubt about this. So hey. I found I found yeah. this um, tool lying about, and I was like, okay, let's let's suss this out. Paper in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology, two thousand and thirteen, and they actually did this when it came to job interviews, and they had people uh, two two groups, obviously a control as well, and one group was shown. Um, you know they're all all their achievements and what they actually had done in their life prior to the interview and the other group shown the things that they hadn't done or had not achieved and then obviously control where they had nothing and what they found is that the people who were interviewing the interviewers actually preferred on statistically significantly the people that had been primed through looking at their achievements and that was just a really simple thing to go through it wasn't any other anything else than looking at a couple of achievements that they had and i think then when it comes to implementing this is knowing, and I want to make a really clear caveat, because I think it can be very easy to go down the track of what have I achieved in my career, right? And that's where, you know, you get Mm. your self-worth. Hey, this is what I've done. But I think that's a good question. What have I achieved in my professional life? What have I done in my career? But what have you achieved in your personal life? Being in a relationship for two or three years is an achievement, right? It's a hard thing to do to be in a relationship, right? And taking stock of that. Um, And the other one that I've got here in this list that you could create is what have you helped other people achieve? So instead of directing it into the, I've achieved this, it's the, I've helped other people achieve this. And that's where a lot of self-worth and self-esteem can also come from, which is how have you made other people better? And when you're experiencing this imposter syndrome, review it, have a look at it, have a look at it and see the impact that it has on you. It's not going to be an instant fix, but sometimes we need these subtle reminders that we've done a lot more than we think we've done and that we're doing a half decent job. And so that's brain tool number three, the unforgettable achievement file.
0: So glad you- brought that brain tool to light because it's actually really well researched by some people not specifically um in the psychology sphere but also some of the neuroscientists such as dr moran surf who recommends the same thing and it makes a lot of sense if you think about it from this perspective of attention where if you're putting that spotlight of attention on the things you've done well and in your achievements and there's personal ones in particular you're going to feel better about yourself naturally
1: 100 and you've got the final brain tool my friend
0: Wrapping it up with brain tool number four, which is write about your values. Before I say that, the typical uttering self-help mantras, the I'm so lovable and I am amazing, are really, really ineffective. Quite frankly, Shots they are. The research, Sam, the research shows I've, this. You've unholstered my friend. You're shooting. I've shooting, shooting.
1: shot down Amy Cuddy apparently now and you're just joining the fun. <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm taking some serious throwing some serious punches at the self-help industry. But the research basically shows they only work well for people who already have high self-esteem. And for people who don't, they can actually backfire telling yourself these things. But what does work is a specific self-affirmation exercise, and one in particular, which has a body of research. And what that shows is writing about the things you value, whether that's your family, your career, environmentalism, your beliefs, your volunteering strengthens your self-worth and your self-esteem. Mm.
1: So can you help me understand that? So that's the values part. What would be the, the opposite part to this then? If, uh, if that, like, you know, in terms of self-affirmation, if I, didn't, if I was writing my, my values, I get this, which is the family, the career. What would be the opposite to that, if there is out of
0: interest? By opposite, what, what exactly do you mean thinking?
1: Well, I'm thinking like in terms of values being quite intrinsic to you right? Which is, you know, yeah. like that seems quite different from a, you know, what you've achieved, if that makes sense.
0: It is, but I think that's part of the reason why it works so well, or from what I understood from the body of papers on this. And that's because what they found was showing this self-affirmation can boost things like performance, improve our responses to threat, minimize anxiety, stress, defensiveness associated with threats to ourselves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason is because I know I'm not touching in the opposite, but the reason this works in particular values being an intrinsic thing is reflecting on these is rewarding to the brain and mm-hmm. it's pleasurable, is what they found. So there's actually a couple of studies where they they use fMRI in particular, ran people through these exercises, scanned their brains, and they saw that the reward centers of their brains lit up. They were active while participating in this action, and. That could be part of the reason why it's so effective is because it makes us feel good about who we are, our lives, what's going on in our lives, what we're doing, and it reminds us to feel good about these things that we value. So, there's a, one of the studies in particular was the 2015 paper in the Journal of Social, Cognitive, and Effective Neuroscience by the one and only happiness researcher himself, Matthew Lieberman and colleagues, where they asked a whole bunch of overweight people to participate in these self affirmation exercises. And then they showed them some really, really confronting messages about mm-hmm. weight loss and obesity and things that would trigger most people. And they found the ones that participated and wrote down what they valued, whether that was their family or their relationships or their work. After being exposed to these threatening messages, so to speak, they actually felt much better than the people who didn't. And so there was a direct correlation with self-esteem and they also scanned the brands, brains and found all this correlation and link to these reward areas being active.
1: That makes heaps of sense. And I think that's now aligning with that, uh, you know, pleasure purpose pendulum, right, of eudaimonia, which it almost seems as if, as you're rightly saying, it's like these self-affirmations of value-based things um, are clearly very directed upon purpose, not just pleasurable things to affirm, um, which is very clear, you know, man's search for meaning by Viktor Frankl.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The old Viktor, exactly right. And the fact that they have these huge benefits on our self-esteem uh, in general is really, really cool. And knowing that, the question is, like, how do we actually use this? It's, it's really, really simple, right? From all the research, the one exercise to do is sit down and write about your core personal values. And I've just discovered this myself, so I'm learning to implement it now. And what I've been doing is in my journal, uh, if I remember at night, I just spend five minutes writing about what, what I actually care about, what I really, really value. So for me, that's things like access to education, value mental health, uh, emotional intelligence, teaching, sharing. And I write about those things. And I'm actually noticing it is helping me feel better about myself reflecting on these values. So if anyone at home listening, just spend some time writing about the things you value on a recurring basis. And it has benefits to your self-esteem, and your confidence. And that's brain tool number four. Write about what you value.
1: Yeah, and it aligns nicely also with the the notion of, you know, Stoic philosophy that we always speak about, that these values things seem to be in your, in your internal locus of control. They're not externalities, which um, reinforces why this is a very good brain tool. We'll go back to the top, my friend, and summarise all What's these bad boys. Brain tool number uno, paint your body language picture. I think the key thing to remember here is what does it look like when you are lacking confidence and what does it look like when you actually have confidence? Really assess that and then get a mirror, video yourself, or get feedback from someone watching you in different situations that you feel you lack confidence, i.e. you don't think that you can achieve or execute accordingly. Doing this is a really good feedback loop, which will help you iterate your behavior, appear more confident, and then obviously interact with people in a much more confident way. That's point to number one, paint your body language picture.
0: Speaking of the body, brain tool number two is the nerve narrative flipping. When you are nervous, when you are worried, rather than thinking, I'm so anxious, I'm so nervous, tell yourself, I'm excited. It is the same physiological response in your brain and your body. And just by flipping that narrative, you can actually flip how it impacts you and your confidence. And that's brain tool number two, nervous narrative flipping.
1: And brain tool number three, the unforgettable achievement file. We can get caught in the weeds. We sometimes don't smell the roses of what we've achieved. And it's really important to sometimes take stock, especially when you're feeling like an imposter. So ask yourself those questions. What have you achieved in your personal, professional, and most importantly, what you've helped other people achieve. Note them down and look at it when you're feeling a little bit down and low on confidence, it'll spike it back up. Brain tool number three, unforgettable achievement file.
0: And the last one, brain tool number four, write about your values this has been shown, this self-affirmation affirmation, uh, exercise has been shown to improve your self-esteem, to build resilience, and it does this by activating the parts of your brain responsible for reward and self-processing. And it's as simple as spending some time writing out, this is what I value. This is what I really care about in my life um, on a regular basis to help build a confidence foundation. Brain tool number four, Write what you value.
1: And now, as we wrap up episode 30 on Confidence Sam, what is your 80 20 for this episode?
0: My 80 20 is confidence is built one success at a time, but you can manage nerves and narratives as you build this confidence muscle.
1: Mm, And beelining into that is my 80 20, which is confidence is a reflection of how you respond to your environment. Really looking at those things that you control, the values that Sam discussed, is really, really important so that you can execute and go on your merry way in a confident matter. And that's wrapping it up.
0: That's wrapping up. That's confidence for this week. And I'll tell you what, I have actually been using some of these confidence brain tools myself this week. So I'm excited for other people to get to try out them for themselves.
1: Well, Sammy, that was a great episode, my friend. Great to see you as always. And until next time. (laughs) See you later. You've made it to the end, and thank you so much for listening and your vote of confidence. There is one thing, one thing that you could pretty, pretty please do for us which would definitely support us. Sam, what can they do?
0: What you can do is you can go and hit that share button on iTunes, on Spotify, wherever you're listening to this, and drop the link with some other people, some friends maybe or a family member who struggles a little bit with confidence to share some of these tips with them. you're also loving the podcast feel free to give us a review on itunes follow us on social medias we're on all the platforms thank you again for listening next week we have a very special surprise episode so make sure you don't miss that one